Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 1st, 2022. Always been curious about the sound of the seasons. Some writers do a better job representing those seasons than others. Looking at the New York Times today, um, there aren't a lot of sounds of the seasons. One of my favorite writers, um, at least from the Times, used to have a column uh, in the New York Times called uh, the rural life, and he often wrote about the sounds of the seasons. One of his last columns from 2013, Verline Klinkenborg, was uh, Sounds from the Sky. Some wonderful writing about the kind of sounds that tree uh, that uh, birds make. Verlin is also the author of a number of books. He currently teaches at Yale, one of which is The Rural Life, another more scenes from The Rural Life. Uh, and I was very disappointed in, uh, like many of us, in uh, on Christmas Day 2013 when Verlin bid adieu to the world. He wrote a, a final piece called Farewell from the Rural Life, uh, saying that for 16 years he wrote the column and this is the last. So it disappeared at least for a while. He said the farm would go on, life would go on, his column wouldn't. So I was kind of very intrigued that Verlin has reappeared, maybe not his column, but his sound, his sense of the seasons and his love of nature. Uh, earlier this month, uh, on June 18th, he had a wonderful piece called Spring, now comes with a secret dread. Um, it's a wonderfully uh, evocative and perhaps in some ways depressing piece about uh, how nature is changing. And I'm thrilled that Verlin is joining us from Chatham, New York, not from the old farm, uh, Verlin, but from a new one or from a new kind of rural life. Um, these sounds of the seasons, uh, you've written about them in, in, in some detail. What is the sound of summer, Verlin, for you? We're on uh, July 1st, 2022. When you think of Julys in the countryside and rural life, what does it sound like? Well, it changes every day um, over the course of the summer. By this point, um, a lot of the breeding is done among the birds, so the bird calls are not quite as evocative as they would be earlier in June, for example. But for example, outside my office here, uh, there's a catbird that lives in the in the brush, and uh, I can hear it sort of making its ratcheting call all day long. Um, what's waiting to happen now is the, the sort of crescendo of cricket sounds that comes late in the evening. Um, it's really a late summer uh, sound. And we're really at a transitional phase here where um, some of the early spring sounds, early summer sounds have begun to fade away and we haven't begun to hear the late summer sounds yet. So it's a, it's, it's a tipping point in the, in the season. Not just a tipping point in the season. You are writing, I think, and, and maybe I'm guessing, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a, a different, more ominous kind of tipping point that you write about in this wonderful new essay in The Times. Spring now comes with a secret dread. What's happened over the last nine years, Verlin, since uh, on the farm, in nature, in the environment, since you last your, since you, well, you wrote your last rural uh, column? 
I mean, I think it's what we're all aware of, that um, the sense of climate change is rolling over us in a way that's much more much more palpable to anyone who's paying attention than it ever has been. Um, and if you aren't aware of it, um, you need to be aware of it. If you're paying attention to the world around you, you can't help feeling that there must be something that you can notice that's actually telling you that this change is taking place. For me, it really is, it feels like the, the seasons have become irregular in a way. I can't really predict and depend on um, what I used to predict and depend on. So at the beginning of spring, when we're waiting for the swallows to return, it used to be taken, I mean, I just assumed oh, the swallows would be back early May. Um, and this year, as it's been for the last couple of years, it's like, well, will they be back? Um, what if they don't come back? What if something's happened in their migratory path, which reaches all the way down to South America to prevent them from coming back? And I think I'm, I'm not the only one who feels this. I think anyone who pays attention to bird life or to the natural world around them has the same sense of trepidation that things are changing so rapidly. We don't really know what's going to be happening next. Verlin, what, what does this upturning of the seasons, of the regular cycles, what does it look and feel like to you living upstate New York? Well, I mean, there's the, what I think of as the regular pattern, which is a lot of snow in the in the in the winter, um, a wet spring, a dry summer, um, a beautiful fall. But um, what what I'm really writing about in that essay is that we can no longer really think of ourselves as localized as we used to. Uh, I compare one of the things I'm talking about there is a, a person I've written about quite a lot, Gilbert White, who was a, an Anglican clergyman in England in the uh, mid 18th century, who really wouldn't have known where the swallows went uh, during the winter. He, he had some guesses. He thought they might migrate. He thought they might hibernate. Um, but we now know we can tell where they go. We have a sense of the wider world that they live in, which means that we live in that world, too. And all of a sudden, everything that you notice around, at least for me, everything I notice around me, when will the uh, oak, oak leaves mature? When will, um, why are the peonies so early this year? Um, are we on a dependable pattern or is it being altered um, almost month by month? Um, it's very hard to tell. It's very, it's very, once you lose that sense of stability, that, that sort of rock solid expectation of what comes next, that's been part of human history for as long as we've been around, really. Um, things become very curious, very puzzling. You write about um, the reappearance of the swallows as being a relief, and you say, but it shouldn't be a relief, and yet it is. For the last few springs, I felt a secret dread that this might be the year the swallows and the burbalinks don't return, that something might have gone wrong in their migration. What happens, Verlin, when they don't return? When one day you wake up one spring and they're just not there? Um, <clears throat> after a long period of mourning because um, those birds are very important to, to nature where I live, to the identity of where I live. They're actually important to my identity, uh, not because I'm a particularly uh, naturally oriented person, but the fact is we all live in a habitat. And our habitat is defined, uh, at least in the rural landscape, by the creatures, by the organisms around us. And as their patterns change, as their lives change, as their rhythms are disturbed, the same thing happens to us. The, the idea that, that we are somehow solitary, unique, uh, 
uh, a species unto itself is simply ridiculous. Um, we are defined by our existence in a web of organisms that is global. And as they are affected by our activity, uh, we are affected in return. Merlin, you teach now at Yale University. Uh, Martin Puchner is a Harvard University academic. He was on the show last week. He has a new book out, uh, Literature for a Changing Planet. And he writes about how to tell stories about mm -hmm. what's happening. You're in that business. Lots of other people are as well. Uh, two, two writers at Brown University, Kerry Arsenault and Bathsheba DeMuth. DeMuth mm -hmm. is the author of Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Straits, a wonderful book. They're in the business of teaching people to tell stories mm -hmm. uh, about nature at Brown. Uh, uh, is that what you're doing at Yale? What are you teaching? Uh, well, first of all, let me say that Bathsheba DeMuth's book is really, it's a terrific book. Um, I agree completely. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. I absolutely loved it. Um, what I'm doing is something more fundamental, actually. I'm teaching students how to write. Um, what I'm really trying to do is talk to students who've been educated extremely well and brought into a kind of writing that's very formal, very um, stiff in a way, very academic. And I'm trying to essentially, essentially show them how I do what I do. Uh, I'm trying to simplify their prose, uh, make it so that when they go to tell stories about the world they live in, they're speaking in a language that's very powerful, uh, very direct, very simple, um, that can communicate with everyone. And you wouldn't think that they would have to be taught that because they're all bright and beautifully educated. But actually, the, the nature of uh, American education, at least, uh, steers people away from the kind of writing that, that I do to something that's much more about manifesting authority, manifesting a sense of uh, accomplishment within an academic setting. And that's just not what I that's not what I do. So really, it's a kind of rescue oper operation. I'm, I'm trying to help students find a way to discover their own authority, the nature of their own voice, and especially the nature of the world around them to actually change the nature of their perceptions and make them see the world, help them see the world more accurately than they could before they could write the way I hope they write. Uh, Valen, you had a, a wonderful piece from 2006 about not owning a Blackberry or a pager. You, you wrote back then, it seems ancient history. I don't chat or instant message or text message. I assume you still don't have a smartphone. I'm guessing that the kids you teach at Yale um, bring their phones to, to class and are pretty, like all kids these days, are addicted to their smartphones. Mm -hmm. Do you think that technology is one of the reasons why we're failing to perhaps tell stories simply and coherently? No, not at all. In fact, um, I'm, I, that, that piece you just quoted is very funny because it's, um, as you say, it's quite antique. I'm as connected as any of my students. And what I find is that, um, you know, text, texting is a very handy, very short form way of telegraphing each other, basically. But for students who write emails, um, I think that the, and there's a way in which um, I know in my own life my email correspondence took over the realm of what would have been my personal typewritten correspondence. And I found myself writing far more than I did um, beforehand, uh, before that. Um, people are communicating in different ways. Um, but I don't think it's having an immediate impact on the language at all. I think the language has always evolved under whatever circumstances we humans have found themselves in. And uh, it's doing that again. Um, but I think that 
when students step out of say the email format or the text format and they want to write for someone speak as if they were speaking to someone in a more public setting um that doesn't happen within the realm of the smartphone that happens within the realm of the kind of things we do which is um trying to write in a way that actually allows you to communicate with other people in a way that lets them understand that you share something very profound Vernon, do you think in your ability to write so simply and directly and emotively about rural life, do you think you have to be there? I mean, the kids you teach, I know you're teaching them general writing skills. I assume some of your classes focus on the environment. Does it help if you take them from New Haven out into the woods? Well, no, not really, because um, even if you're out in the woods, what you're doing is you're you're conveying a mental impression of the woods. You're not, you're not, you're not pasting pieces of not pasting leaves and branches into your into your work everything gets filtered through your mind so what i found is i work with undergraduates but i also work with graduate students who are in the yale school of the environment who have been out in the world everywhere doing all sorts of things and they're writing from their experience which is shaped in the same way mine is out of memory out of research out of um a, a recovered sense of what it's like to be in the world all of us when we write are writing from within our heads and the the thing that i would do if i were taking students out into um the woods for example wouldn't be about writing it would be about noticing which is to say what do you notice here what are you paying attention to what calls out to you what makes you wake up and look at the world around you is it a sound is it a smell is it uh, is it something in the the architecture of the woods itself um so it's really what i what i would emphasize there has nothing to do with writing really uh off the bat it, it has to do much more with how do you notice the world uh, how sensitive to the world around you are you uh, and that's something that actually can be changed with practice Verlin, as I said at the beginning, uh, I missed your column. Many, many others did. Did you miss or have you missed writing it? It well, must have it, been a, a, a rather strange uh, routine to get out of. You, you wrote it for so many years and it's such a beloved column and then it suddenly disappears. Well, what's so complicated about it is that you know, people know that column, but they don't realize is that I was writing probably 100 other editorials unsigned for the Times at the same time. So getting out of the habit of writing editorials was actually a, kind of a big deal because you, suddenly that audience that I was so aware of wasn't there. And, uh, but a lot of people have asked me if I've missed it. And, and the answer is, um, not really. Um, I, my mind has gone other places. I worked on other things. Um, and also that format where you're writing basically 250 to 500 words, is just a little restrictive in the long run. And what happened with this piece, the reason I reappeared was there's a new editor, new op-ed editor, a new climate editor at the Times. And um, they dropped me in and said, we'd love it if you'd do something for us. Um, so to my surprise, um, I said yes, and this happened. I'm, I have no idea whether it will happen again, but it was fun to try. Are you a nostalgic person, Verlin? You, you wrote another fine book, The Last fine time which looks back at uh something with some sympathetic lens do you tend to be nostalgic uh, you're suggesting i think with tech that perhaps you're beginning to adapt to modernity and appreciate it and perhaps even embrace it do, does a guy like you who's probably intuitively a conservative do you have to push yourself to look forward rather than backwards 
No, I, intuitively, I'm not conservative at all. I've always been an early adopter. Um, I've always been one of the people who's, I mean, I think I had my first computer in 1984. Uh, it's a, a thing that's always fascinated me. So the, the illusion that somehow because I write about nature, I must be a, a kind of archaic figure. It's just not, it's not accurate. But in, in, in the last fine time, what I'm writing about really is Buffalo, New York in the, the 1940s at a period of immense transition in that, in that city. And it was nostalgic for many of the people I was interviewing because they lived in the world and they'd watched it change and watched it vanish. But for me, it was nostalgic at all because I'd never lived there. For me, it was all about meeting people for the first time, talking to them, hearing them tell their stories, um, all taking place in the present moment. And uh, it's there's a way in which um, nostalgia is one of those very, very curious emotions where on the one hand it feels very comforting and very satisfying but on the other hand it's very disorienting um because it urges you to be unhappy with where you are at the moment which is not a useful place for most of us to be so writing about the past doesn't mean being nostalgic about it it means being curious about it um i think that's probably the simplest way to say it the politics of environmentalism are interesting complicated in an interesting way uh Last week, I interviewed a young environmentalist, Canadian uh, environmentalist, Lindsay Borgen, mm. who has a new book out. I think I don't know if you've read it, or, but I think you'd probably find it pretty interesting. Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods. You'd expect a book like this to be critical of tree thieves. But actually, she's in some way sympathetic because the people who are stealing trees in the northwestern parts of America where she's doing her work are very poor. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your take on that, perhaps, political division between uh, perhaps a wealthier class that idealize uh, an idyllic, um, unchanging nature, and then younger activists like Lindsay Borgen, who are um, introducing socioeconomic factors into the, into the discussion? Well, I, you cannot separate the two things. And also, anyone who's paying attention to nature does not have an idyllic sense of an unchanging nature. Nature always changes. It's always been changing. It will constantly change. It's not constant in any way. And the fact that we um, can even talk in some romantic way about a stable, unchanging nature is illusory and unhelpful to anyone. Um, the fact is we're living in transition, and we always have been. Humans evolved in transition. I think that, you know, the, we cannot solve the environmental problems we have to solve until we solve the socioeconomic problems we have to solve. The kinds of inequalities that generate uh, environmental tension, um, how, do we, how do we solve environmental problems without resolving those? We can't. We cannot actually make humans, help humans behave in a different way unless there are incentives to behave in a different way. And that affects everyone from the richest to the poorest. Um, it has to be rebalanced, readdressed. Um, the idea that we can um, think of ourselves as separate from nature is insane. The idea that we can se se separate ourselves from the socioeconomic problems of people who are having more difficulty or who are poorer than we are is also insane. Um, they all fit together. They have to form a global total solution. Uh, on Monday, I'm interviewing George Monbiat, another prominent uh, English environmentalist. He has a new book out, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. 
he seems to be becoming increasingly sympathetic with the idea of rewilding. It's become quite fashionable from rewilding the Galapagos, the rewilding initiatives championed by mm-hmm. um, uh, by, by celebrities like Ellie Golding. I, I did an interview with um, Isabella Tree, a uh, mm-hmm. prominent British uh, rewilder. She, uh, she has a good book out, Wilding. What's your take on the the wilding or the rewilding movement? Um, well, uh, I think... Berlin? Is, it, um, is there something there or is it just uh, a sort of a... Uh, the, the, the indulgence of a privileged class. No, no, no. It's, there's definitely something here. But the question to ask is not just what, is, what do we think about rewilding, but what are we rewilding from? And what Monbiot is talking about, and I, I know his work and I admire him, he's talking about rewilding from an agriculture that is destroying this planet, uh, an agriculture that is, is, is effectively stripping the soil from the, the earth, uh, poisoning the water, uh, poisoning insects, um, and rewilding. What is that really about? It's if you think about it less in terms of animals occupying, uh, an, you know, coming back in a sense. What we're really doing is talking about expanding the amount of the earth that belongs to them, and that's a way of saying let's take our hands off of some of the land, some of the water, especially. For me, it's all, it's, it's actually very simple. Once humans stop intervening once humans show restraint nature rebounds very quickly so rewilding is is uh is a way of operating a way of bringing about change that essentially allows nature to help itself because humans are not meddling with it uh humans are standing back and actually undoing some of the astonishing damage that uh, industrial agriculture has done around the globe how serious is that crisis we had eugene linden on the show uh, I think he is uh, actually, he lives in New York too. I don't know if you know him. He suggests that the path to a livable future is becoming narrow and narrow. I mean, he's certainly not alone there. How how narrow is that path, Berlin? Well, it, it depends on the definition of the word livable. Um, I think if uh, we mean a, a world that resembles the world we've been living in right up till now, the path is very small, uh, very narrow. Um, I think if we imagine living in a different way, a different a way that is less unequal, a way that is actually more balanced in relation to the world around us, a, a way that, for example, takes care of, uh, begins to think seriously about overpopulation, um, the the window is much wider, or the, the path is much wider. But there's there's no point in pretending that there's any um, doubt about where we are. Um, anyone who really cannot see that we are in really perilous straits right at the moment and about to get much, much worse is just not paying attention or is politically blinded. Um, it's, it's not empty alarmism. It's not a liberal alarmism. It is simply paying attention to what the scientific data is telling us. And the scientific data is unequivocal. Uh, it's absolutely unequivocal. The Supreme Court has made it clear that they don't seem to be too bothered by all this. Do you think that the problem in America is worse than in the rest of the world? Are there other countries that are pioneering a better future that America might try to emulate? Or is this such a global crisis that thinking in terms of traditional nations and states is is archaic itself? Well, I think we have to use the tools we have right at the moment, and nations and states are part of that, um, just as, you know, 
corporate structures are part of that. Um, and I think these are all, all these things are going to have to work on a community basis, uh, however we define community. But um, the United States has a real problem right at the moment. It is, uh, it, it has always historically had a problem. It has been an astonishingly consuming nation. It's basic mode of operation has been to strip the land and then move on. Historically, that's true. It's ha still happening in a certain sense. Politically, right at the moment, I don't, I, I find myself in um, a very widely shared despair uh, over what the Supreme Court represents because it doesn't represent me. It doesn't represent most of the people I know. It has nothing to do with the fact that I teach at Yale. I grew up in a small farm town in Iowa filled with conservative people. Um, and I cannot imagine that the Supreme Court feels it's speaking for um, the mass of Americans because really, honestly, um, what we've watched is a kind of hijacking of democracy. Um, that's how it feels to me. And the very fact that the Republican Party, which is so much behind all this, is also so res resolutely climate denying tells me that they are paying attention to nothing but their own welfare. I don't disagree with you, but on the other hand, the, it's the Republican Party that is enormously strong in the countryside. That's why they have those seats on the Supreme Court. That's why Congress is so finely balanced, given that there are more Democrats than Republicans in America. Why are so many people in the countryside still Republicans? Well, I think the countryside, you want to be, be careful about that, because I live in the countryside here, and, and there are absolutely some Trump supporters around us. Well, rural states. You wrote, you you know, you've written the book, The Rural Life. You had your, your mm -hmm. we're talking about, say, shall we say, rural states as opposed to urban states. Like Wyoming, for example. Um, yeah. Um, I think it really comes down to a, a number of things. One is a sense of um, changing economic opportunity, the very fact that the the world of employment has changed so radic radically over the last 50 years um, makes it very difficult. I think also there is really what's happened is we've watched um, a separate communication system grow up. I first found this when I was writing about the evangelical right in Colorado, realizing that actually what was happening was evangelical Christians were living in an evangelical Christian media world. That's where they got their information from. It was a closed, sealed off world that had no contact actually with the with science or with um, the press in a more general sense. And that's the same thing we're seeing now um, in conservative America, a, a self-closing loop of information that is not information, that is actually misinformation and disinformation. Um, it's the only way, and we could not have had a better example of that than to watch this pandemic play out, to watch, to watch this country simply refuse to accept what science was telling us. Um, is just crazy. And what that tells me is that if you choose to get your news from only one source, only one political viewpoint, then you're basically um, taking yourself down a path to terminal stupidity. Verlin, we had a, a young Maine state senator on the show, very energetic, smart young woman, actually the, the daughter of Shoshana Zuboff, the Harvard writer on technology. She's ruffled a few feathers. She suggested that Democrats are failing to get their message into the rural world. Would you agree with that? Do, I mean, you're clearly a progressive. You're clearly on the left. I'm guessing you vote Democrat. Course, Do Democrats yeah. need to rethink how they talk to the rural world, to rural Americans? Uh, it Maybe they need to rethink how they talk in general. Um, I, to me, it feels like... Um, 
what I'm hearing is not very energetic, not very disciplined, not very um, thoughtful in the long run. It's it's really there's a kind of faintness to it that I don't really understand. And it's not that we want to, you know, not that we want to get in a shouting match here. Um, but I think you're right. I think I don't I don't know how the what the answer to all that is. I don't know how to find my way out of that. Um, because one of the big problems we've all faced over this since 2016 is how do you talk to someone? who's a QAnon uh, fiend, for example? How do you talk to someone who's a Trumpite? Um, how do you talk to somebody who's really doesn't actually believe that the climate is changing? Um, how do you talk to somebody who um, doesn't believe in evolution, for example? I mean, where do we where do we begin these conversations? They're really hard. To me, what it says ultimately is um, the problem is not so much with how we communicate with rural America, it's how we educate rural America. The idea that there's a public education that has a public consensus behind it has been shattered. And what we see is the, the, the fracturing of educational systems so that it's possible to grow up in this world now to be educated in only the things your parents believe in. Well, that is a recipe for terminal stupidity, too. Well, in one, uh, I'm doing some research on you. One of the, the reviewers of your work, a guy who writes for the Buffalo News, said that your vision is far sharper than that of any hawk that might circle the fields in his small upstate New York farm. Some listeners and viewers will remember also that you, your last book, I think, Timothy or Notes from an Abject Reptile, is written um, from the point of view of, of another creature. We've done a number of shows on that. Uh, Simon Montgomery, for example, writing mm -hmm. about hawks. Mm -hmm. Carl Safina writing about being humble in the face of other species. Uh, Jackie Higgins on sentience. Is that another piece that perhaps you understand and that we need to understand to think like other species, going back to your swallows that you hope mm -hmm. will return? Is it not just looking for them to return and having the relief of them returning, but somehow experiencing them as fellow creatures? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, the way I talk about it is that every, organi or every organism on this planet has an absolutely equal right to exist. In other words, our right to exist as humans is not superior to the right of a swallow to exist, to the right of a salamander to exist. It's identical. We are all genetically kin. We're all genetically very close to each other. Um, there is absolutely, a, there's no way of separating this is what it comes down to. It goes back to what I was saying about habitat earlier. But one of the things that living on that farm that I wrote about in the rural life, surrounded by chickens and geese and ducks and by horses and pigs, is that you learn that you're living in the middle of these animals who have different senses, different organs of perception that you do. They see the world differently, they feel the world differently, and you become very aware of the limitations of your own sensory apparatus. You become aware that they are actually unbelievably acute observers of the world around you, and you begin to depend upon it. I got to the point where I could, I could tell by the behavior of the animals around me what were they noticing? What were they? It was something that I wasn't noticing, and I had to look around to figure out what it was. Um, and that's a really, it's an amazing thing to experience because you, it, it breeds a kind of humility in you because you realize 
okay, I'm smart, but actually my smartness blinds me because I don't have the sensory perceptions that these animals do. Um, they have memories that are very different from mine. Um, it's just, it's, it, was, it was a beautiful experience. Uh, it was really as important to me in my education in life as anything I learned in college or graduate school. Well, I'm thrilled you're back, even if it's just a one-off. Uh, it's an essential piece people need to read. Spring, spring now comes with a secret dread. That's not the most reassuring piece, but an essential read in uh, June 18th in the New York Times. Congratulations on that. Congratulations on all your your teaching and, and all the books. What else are you reading these days, Verlin? That, um, uh, a couple of things. I can tell you a couple of things. Uh, one is the one thing I've enjoyed most recently is Fintan O'Toole's book about uh, Ireland. We don't know. Yeah, I want to get him on the show, actually. I've yeah. heard very good things about that book. Incredible book. Um, there are two, a couple of environmental books that um, there's a new book by Tom Lovejoy and John Reed uh, called Evergreen. Uh, yeah, Ireland. they've been on the show, too. He's a neighbor of mine, John Reed. In fact, his daughter and my son went to the same school in oh, really? Sonoma. Well, I have a brand new review of that book uh, and a book by Ben Rollins called The Tree Line, which is excellent in the in the new issue of the New York Review of Books. Oh, great. I don't know that other book. Is that a good one, too, the, the Rollins book? It's excellent. Uh, ben Rollins um, worked in Africa for years. He wrote a wonderful book about Congo and a wonderful book about uh, refugee camps in uh, uh, Somalia. Um, and this new book, he travels around the boreal tree line, the northern tree line, all around the all around the globe, and interviews people and looks. It, it's it's really a striking book, beautifully written, beautifully researched, and the two together make an excellent um, sort of companion. Uh, they have an excellent companionship because John's and Tom Lovejoy's book is fundamentally optimistic about what humans are capable of doing. And Rollins's book is much more skeptical, much more um, doubtful generally. But they make a they make a lovely pair. Yeah, maybe to add a third might be uh, uh, Lindsay Borgen's Tree Thieves. I think reading the the Reed and the Borgen book together would be really interesting. I have I have that book with me, but I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Um, and then there's one more book I'll mention, which is there's a new book out by Ken Stanley Robinson, the science fiction writer, mm. called The High Sierra, A Love Story, which is about his 50 years of hiking in the Sierras in California. It's really, it's a very personal, very strange, um, very interesting book that is um, confusing in some ways. It'll be off-putting to some readers because they won't know the territory, but it's really, a, it's, a, it's a deeply felt love letter to um, a beautiful part of the world. 